Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio, aimed at helping you live an enjoyable, fit, and healthy life in and around our community of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, here is your host, Dr. John Mark Chesney. Welcome to this month's podcast. I'm super thrilled to have as my guest a physician who has the reputation for, for being one of the best medical doctors in the region, someone that I have long admired whose patients always rave to me about his care, his service, and his expertise. I'm very fortunate to have Dr. Mark McCall. Dr. McCall is uh, the founder of Pillar Primary Care. He's board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics by the American Board of Internal Medicine, the American Board of Pediatrics, and the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. In 2012, he began to formulate the idea of developing a direct primary care practice and spent the next three years researching and building a sustainable business model. He launched this program in January 2016. His fellow partners allowed him to serve as president of, Tri of Trinity Direct Primary Care, pioneering the direct primary care movement in Knoxville. And in 2019, Dr. McCall founded Pillar Primary Care to continue the mission of direct primary care for his patients and his community. Dr. McCall has special interest in preventative health, nutritional counseling, metabolic disorders, diabetes, insulin resistance, um, vaccine preventable diseases, and cardiovascular disorders. I'm very blessed and privileged to have um, Dr. McCall back on the show. Thank you for coming um, as my first return uh, podcast guest. So welcome. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here, John Mark, as always. The first episode, um, like I said, Dr. McCall was actually the um, the guest on episode number two, and we got into the full history of how we got into medicine um, and then how we got into direct primary care and all about um, direct primary care. So I encourage our listeners, if that's something you're intrigued and want to hear that full um, interview, to go back to episode number two. But just for our listeners right now, Dr. McCall, if you uh, could give us just a brief understanding of how direct primary care uh, differs from uh, traditional medicine. And then um, we'll transition to um, diet, um, what Dr. McCall recommend, uh, recommends, um, and the various forms of um, diet and nutrition. And then also the second half, we'll get into um, intermittent um, fasting and the benefits of fasting. So, Dr. McCall, tell us a little bit about um, uh, direct primary care. Well, yeah, absolutely. I could talk all day about that again. Um, so, direct primary care is just a it's a membership based model of primary care that transitions the conversation from involving sort of as the primary um, interaction point between the physician and the insurance company and the patient and the healthcare system, it transitions that so that it's just the physician and the patient that are making the decisions and everybody else becomes peripheral to that conversation. It, it brings that patient back in the center of the relationship. It's what I think most folks within uh, primary care want to do. Um, and are trying to do in various ways. And I chose to do this back in 2016 when we launched Trinity Direct Primary Care to open up in this model. It's a model that's exploding across the country, basically works in one sense, kind of like a gym membership for uh, healthcare for primary care. So the membership itself gets you unlimited visits. There's no copay for visits. Uh, everybody has my cell phone number, my email. We can talk during the business day, 
about anything pretty much at any time. It's it's a really it opens up the conversational aspect of things. It keeps the patient uh, panel down to a reasonable size so that I get to know all of my patients. That we don't have this giant enormous when you say patient panel. That's how many you have that you're responsible for. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So a traditional primary care doctor tends to have about two to three thousand per physician. If they have a support staff, that might you know, go up higher. When I transitioned out of insurance-based care, I had fifty-five hundred underneath my care. Had a great team that helped me manage them, but there's no way I knew them all. There's just no way. I, I mean, I'd meet people in the grocery store and I and they would talk about their last visit and you know, embarrassingly, I wouldn't remember. And um, so really, that was just part of the, the whole idea of, I got to do something different so that I can actually know the people I'm taking care of, that I can work with them, that I know where they are, and that when they need a conversation about something, we're not starting from scratch. We're just picking up like you would, and you, you just met your friend at a coffee shop, and you're just carrying on that conversation. So that's really the the model that I wanted. So now I have about 650 patients in my panel and I'm pretty full. I'm probably as full as I can make it and still take care of the patients that I have. And I think that's the other great thing about the practice is it incentivizes us to take care of those that are already under our charge, that not to try and drive new business and new, new patients coming in and rolling through all the time. It's how do I take care of the person right in front of me? And that's, that's my primary focus. And that's what I love about this model. Um, so that's what that's what it's allowed me to do. So the way we set ours up and the, and the uniqueness of direct primary care is that every practice gets to set it up however they want to, whatever their skill set is. So I'm board certified in pediatrics and internal medicine. So it gives me a chance to see the whole age range. I love cardiometabolic disorders. And so we get to talk a lot about disease reversal and diabetes and reversing heart disease, reversing uh, high blood pressure, um, obesity management, weight loss, uh, gout you know, all sorts of different things that come up with that. Plus all the ordinary things, you know, I saw strep throat three or four times today and some funny rashes and all sorts of primary care stuff. Um, and it allows us to do all that in a setting that encourages us to have a prolonged conversation. So like I said, all the visits are included with no copay, all the phone calls, all the emails. We dispense medicines from the office, uh, sort of, you know, ordinary medicines, diabetes medicines, high blood pressure, antibiotics, and I just dispense them at whatever my wholesale cost is. And so um, I was pricing out a medication for somebody earlier today and 100 day bottle of a particular blood pressure drug was $3, $2.90. And so it's just, I mean, it's just a very inexpensive proposition at times. And it also allows us to give um, uh, better deals on things like some of the blood work that we do, uh, some of the advanced imaging, just a, a lot of discounts across the board because the value is in the relationship and not really kind of following people around and nickel and diming them for each thing that needs to be done. So we want to just establish a relationship and move on. But the other aspect of it is we run everything a month to month. So we don't have any long-term contract. I don't believe that long-term contracts are really a good way to generate trust because if, if, if you're stuck in a relationship because you're contractually obligated to be there, that's not really a, a very good trust relationship. And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to run everything month to month. So at any given month, everybody could leave and quit. And it'd be done, right? But the goal is that as long as we're providing care for everybody, they're going to keep showing up. And that's every small business knows this. Every restaurant knows this. Nobody has a contract with Calhoun's. And yet people keep showing up every single day because they provide pretty good food, pretty good service, pretty good price, what people really want. And so I think that if I'm doing that too, then people keep showing up. And I'd imagine um, having fewer um, patients on your panel um, that that affords you the ability to spend more time with them 
and thus get into conversations um, of how to um, improve their health that goes beyond writing um, a prescription. You're exactly right. So our standard visit is 30 minutes. Each new patient is an hour. And that's just the start of the conversation. And so when typically when I see a new patient, we'll spend an hour talking about stuff. We usually get to the major issues in that hour, but if not, we just schedule more time. We just, we can schedule as many hours as we need to. I've had folks that have come in in the morning. We've seen them for an hour. They had to break to go do other things and they came back later on that day and we spent more time together to work on some more things. And then we'll do some blood work on them. I'll check some things. We'll find out how insulin resistant they are and some of their cardiometabolic sort of factors. And then we'll sit down again and we'll talk specifically for 30 minutes on nutrition. What kind of nutritional intervention is going to help with them? For most folks, that's a big deal. It's about 80% of their health is what they eat. So we spend a lot of time talking about that. And then for us, we have a, I have a dietitian on staff, uh, Carly Slagle. She's fantastic. She's worked with us a little over a year. And so every patient, that's their third visit in my practice. And so when they come in, they see me. We, and they see me again when we talk about the labs. And then they come back through and see Carly as a third visit. And then we go from there. Typically, I'm seeing folks about once a month to every three months when we're doing blood work about every three months and following them along. And then along the way, people are always emailing me and asking questions um, or calling. And so a lot of times people will talk to me about um, some of the, uh, the recipes they've gotten or some of the questions they've had, or they'll talk about some of the fasting protocols, which we'll get into a little bit. I do, uh, I use a continuous glucose monitor for lots of patients. And so I'm able to review their real-time glucose data. So somebody will call me up and say, Hey, yesterday I had such and such going on and this is what I ate for lunch and I can't understand what's going on with this sugar. Can you help me look at it? So I can pull up their glucose data and we can just be on the phone together and look at what's going on and help them understand what they ate, how that changed things, and then maybe what choices would be next time. And then sometimes it's not a food related thing that's causing sugars to change. And so we can work through some of those scenarios and how do we manage that type of stuff. So yeah, it really affords a lot of extra time and, um, and just getting to know them and meeting them wherever they are, whenever it is, basically. Well, sure. Well, I love to um, maybe give people, give our listeners a, an inside insider's glimpse into like a conversation that you would have. And we talked a little bit um, that came up um, on our first um, episode about the importance of diet and nutrition, but to spend more time. Um, on the subject of um, how um, the conversations you have um, with patients. And and just for a disclaimer uh, with Dr. McCall, this is, um, we're not giving out medical advice. Um, so um, this is um, good information, but uh, we encourage any listener, if, um, if they have an interest in the topic um, of diet, nutrition, of fasting, the information that we're going over today, to um, consult your medical provider um, to help figure out what is the best option um, for you. But um, but yeah, Dr. McCall, if you don't mind sharing, like if there's a specific diet that you tend to lean towards um, and why that is. Yeah, so I tell folks um, that I, I advocate for a whole food, low carb approach to nutrition. And it's, it's really a twofold thing. It's not... Um, there's not a one-page handout that everybody ought to eat from and then every, everything's fixed, right? So it's understanding the physiology, in, in my opinion, it's understanding the physiology and understanding what you need to do to change that physiology to, to make your, the, the engine of your, your body do what you need it to do. 
So it's kind of like if everybody wanted to go to Disney World, we all know where Disney World is, right? So you go to Florida. But we all might start from different spots within the country or perhaps even the world. And so you, we would all do different things to get to Disney World, even if the end result is going to be the same. And so that's where we spend a lot of time trying to look for exactly where somebody's at when they get started. What are their factors that are motivating them? What are the food choices they like? What are their food allergies? What is the stuff that makes a difference in their life? How did they come to where they are now? Sometimes they're social factors. Certain foods kind of expensive. Some of it isn't and understanding those things. So we try and take all that as one big picture and then sit down and within that framework, build a dietary plan for them. The physiology is the same. So you breathe oxygen just like I do. We both need oxygen and 21% oxygen, room air oxygen is about what we need. We can survive a little bit more. We can survive a little bit less. And in certain circumstances, we should. But it's the same physiology. And so what we want to do with food is we want to find out where somebody is and then tailor that recommendation, understanding the physiology of where it is. By and far, the most common problem I deal with is insulin resistance. It's easily the number one issue. And it is the crux issue for everything else that I kind of work through. So high blood pressure, certainly diabetes, obviously, but cholesterol disease, obesity, gout, gallbladder disease, cancer growth, dementia, I mean, PCOS, you name sort of the top nine problems of Western world, and they're all related to insulin resistance. So if I can strike at the heart of the problem by correcting insulin resistance, well, then most of these things start to go away. So that's, that's a whole lot of what I struggle through with patients. So the, the biggest, the first assessment that we usually make is understanding what they eat and kind of how they move. Um, and then asking that question, what is the body doing to get them to normal? So your body wants to be normal. That's what we call homeostasis. And so it wants a normal body temperature, 98.6 or so. So it does a lot of things to try and get you to 98.6. So if you stand out in the cold, your body's going to shiver. You're going to try and warm up. If you're out in the summer sun, you're going to sweat and it's going to try and cool you down. So it's trying to get back to 98.6. And the question is, how hard is it working? And that's what I do a lot of. So if somebody comes in and they have a blood sugar of 85, which is completely normal, then the question isn't, hey, good job. You got to normal. Don't worry about it. We'll talk to you next year. The question is, how hard are you working to get to normal? If you're working really super hard, well, that's a problem. And we use uh, insulin as sort of our primary driver for that. So a fasted glucose and a fasted insulin tells you the world as far as what's going on. And then you, we use some other biomarkers to understand sort of the peripheral aspect of it. But um, so just give you a quick example. So if you had a blood sugar of 85 and your insulin was five, which is pretty good, that's not very much work. But what if it was 15? What if your insulin was 15? Or what if it was 25 or 55? So you can see that the same result, the end result of glucose of 85, you might have to work two or three or four times harder to get there. And that engine working harder and harder is not going to last as long as the one that gets to work real easy, like the way it's sort of designed to. So managing sugar is, um, and keeping the blood sugar down, there's a defensive mechanism involved there. And once that defensive mechanism is overrun, that's when the body starts to have issues of high blood sugar. We see obesity really is just a defensive mechanism. It's protecting you against the high blood sugars. There's some people who don't have, and I'll say this truthfully, the luxury of becoming obese. They, they fight against high blood sugars and they lose that fight because they don't have any storage ability. 
And those folks become diabetic really early, type two diabetic really early. And so for those that can store, then you'll see that as being a delay of developing their diabetes. So that's, that's kind of the, the, one of the very first things that we look at is a fasting glucose and a fasting insulin. Once I start to see that and start to see some of the downstream effects like their cholesterol and their triglycerides and their HDL cholesterol, which people often refer to as the good cholesterol. Once I start to see those things, it's very easy to find, figure out where somebody is and then start to dial in what their diet's going to look like. And so when we're looking at that, we, when we think about... Is that your, your typical um, kind of first, like, hey, this is our, um, our, our main tool here for most clients is like, let's first head to diet and nutrition. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it, without question, that's the first thing. So I always think about it. It's, it's a both and. Rename the practice Pillar Primary Care because I talk about the four pillars of good health all the time. So it's nutrition, exercise, sleep, and peace or stress management. So correcting those, supporting those, that's what provides us with the, the framework of good health. Um, and it, they don't cure everything, but they support good health in everything. So if some, somebody has rheumatoid arthritis, um, there's no known way to cure that through nutrition, exercise, sleep, and peace. But if you're non-diabetic and you don't have the inflammation driven by those sugars, you're exercising on a regular basis, you're getting good sleep, and that's restoring the body, and you're managing the stress and cortisol, well, you're going to suffer that rheumatoid arthritis a whole lot better than those that aren't. And so we can keep the joints, we can make people healthier, functionally better, it's not just lifespan, it's health span. How long do you get to live that you actually get to do what you want to do? That's a, that's a big part. So, so that's why the pillars are really important. And so nutrition is easily the first step because we can correct so much. And, and really the, the idea with that is nutrition is such an easy step because you're going to eat, period. You know, you're going to eat today, probably two or three or four times today. So it's not a question of doing something extra, which is really what exercise is. You've got to figure out a way to build some sort of movement and activity into your life. It's not some, it's not the question of not doing something too hard and like sleep, because if you think about sleep too much, it kind of ruins sleep sometimes. It's not about stress management, which is like nobody really has a handle on right now. It's about doing the thing that you're going to do and that you're going to want to do, that you like to do in a way that actually makes you healthy and satisfies you. And that's I think that's the beauty of it is is when people start to get on a good nutritional plan, when they start eating a whole food low carb approach, it fuels the body so well, they don't wanna quit and they feel so much better. It's not, it's not an act of willpower to kind of hold on to the diet and to, they, they, they'll go to the Christmas party and they'll be, I don't want that food because I know how good I feel without it. Mm -hmm. And that feeling good is way better than that food. And that's, that's a glorious thing, honestly. With uh, low carb, is there a certain, like, how do you define low carb? Oh, that's a great question. So, so a lot of people debate low carb as far as how much is really low carb. And it's really coming out that, um, you know, somebody has got to draw the line in the sand somewhere. And so it's really coming out that less than about 120 grams per day is considered in the low carb space. The very low carb, which is what we would call ketogenic is down under about 20 grams per day. So everybody produces ketones all the time. So in my mind, it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that you're on a ketogenic diet because your diet right now is producing ketones and they are measurable. But we define nutritional ketosis as generally 0.5 millimoles per liter or higher. So you could do that on a finger stick, a blood test or a blood draw, or, and there's some breath testing mach machines that are out there that are, that are pretty reliable that kind of give you some numbers as well. 
So we would define that. So, so ketogenic diet is a low enough carbohydrate to produce the ketones as a fuel product that's measurable. Not that ketones are something new that your body doesn't use. They use them all the time, every day anyway. So low carb carbohydrate is less than 120 grams. And that's, that's about the threshold at which your body needs glucose to survive. So your body has an obligate need for glucose to live every day. The kicker there, and it's about 100 to 120 grams per day is what it needs. But the kicker is that your liver produces about 200 to 250 grams. These are adult male values. 200 and 250 grams per day every day. So your body produces all the glucose you'll ever need as an adult. And that's kind of what makes the low carb approach so different is you could eat zero carbohydrates, the very low end of the ketogenic diet, live the rest of your life and really probably not suffer anything at all from it. You don't have to, but you could. You can't say that about protein and you can't say that about fat. There are minimum requirements there, just like oxygen and water, is if you go below those, you die. You would die of protein malnutrition, you would die of fat malnutrition. So an ultra low fat or a zero fat diet is a fatal diet. Nobody would want to do that. Nobody could do it. And in fact, when you look at really low fat diets trying to live out by really intelligent people, health professionals who are really trying hard to do this and studied very, very, very well, they find it a very difficult challenge because the lower fat you go, the more the body is saying, hey, I really need this to survive. Can you go find it for me? Same with protein. Low protein diets tend to have that as well. When you cut out the carbohydrates and you drop them, once your body adapts to that state, there's no deficiency there. There's no, there's no problem with trying to seek it out. So less than 120 grams is- So 120 grams, just practically speaking, give us an example of what that would look like in a day. Yeah, so oh, that's a great question. I, I honestly haven't calculated that out personally for a while. And what, what most people do is, well, so when I think about it, when we first start out, um, I typically will tell folks about 100 grams. It's a nice ballpark figure. And I get them to start using one of the, the food counting apps. Uh, Lose It is one of my favorite ones because it's free. It's very simple. And my Fitness Pal is another one. And just to start to become aware of what those look like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So about 30 grams per meal plus a little 10 extra kind of spread out throughout the day. So when you think about an apple, uh, depending on the size of an apple, a, a regular two-inch diameter apple is about 25 grams of carbohydrates. One of the giant Honeycrisp apples, which are ones that really taste good, are probably about 50. A banana is about anywhere from 25 to 35, depending upon the size of the banana. Grapes can be pretty high as well, blueberries. And these are all sort of naturally occurring carbohydrates, kind of choices for that. Um, a sweet potato, depending on the size of the sweet potato, is about 60 or 65. And so then you start thinking about like processed foods, like a bagel is about 65, a two inch by two inch piece of birthday cake is about 65. That's a pretty small piece of birthday cake. That's mm -hmm. not what most people eat. <laughs> so you can get into those pretty easily. You know, a cup of rice uh, is probably about 30 grams of carbohydrates, same with pasta. And those are not very filling sort of meals. You think about a cup of rice as if that was going to be your, your carbohydrates for a meal, that's just not a whole lot. And that's kind of the whole point though. And so we use 100 grams as sort of that starting point for lots of folks. It's a very easy benchmark. And then we start pushing it lower or sometimes dive in lower, kind of depending on what people want. So some folks are really engaged. They're ready to go. They come to see me and they've kind of already got the mindset of, I want to go as low as possible to get better as quickly as possible. And so we do that. So we go really ultra low carbohydrate down in the ketogenic phase. Um, it takes about six weeks to kind of adapt to that, sometimes as long as 12, depending upon a few circumstances. But once they get into that, I don't have folks go back. I don't have folks that really give that up in the long-term sense. We all sort of fall off. There's Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthdays, 
we have our temptations that kind of take us away. And they're not all temptations. Sometimes it's a good idea not to eat low carb. I mean, celebrate when it's time to celebrate. And that's, that's no problem with that. But um, people recognize that the low carbohydrate plan, when they get on it, they start feeling so much better and so many of their metabolic issues start to improve. They really don't want to ever go back to the old way of eating. And so they, they keep kind of coming back to it. And it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling diet instead of a diet full of willpower is the only reason that keeps you there. So back to your question though, about hundred grams per day, you start thinking about naturally occurring carbohydrates are really what I'd want people to have and not processed. We give up this, the simple so sugars. that's where you go into whole food. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. And that's a big part of it. And so, um, so I'm, I'm a fan of the whole 30 is sort of the other end of the spectrum, not a low carb diet, but really focuses on real food. And it helps people see what's not food in their diet. To all those things that are gonna come in their diet that are, are really not food, that are part of the food chain, not only just chemical, but sometimes some things like the processing of the grains and alcohol and some of the dairies and so forth, it can really drive a lot of problems with folks. Cut that out as a 30-day challenge and just let them see what the effect is. And uh, it's a little bit of discipline work as well, and it allows them to see that and then decide, well, where do they need to be? So that's really what I follow sort of day in and day out is a whole food, low carb approach. And so I really love sweet potatoes and blueberries. And so I'll have sweet potatoes and blueberries on a fairly regular basis. But I do that in the context of being able to keep my sugars as sort of as a continuous norm, you know, low blood sugar account. So I believe that you, I think over the summer, uh, did some some self-experimenting with um, ketosis Mm -hmm. or a keto diet. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear what your personal experience was like switching and you've been on a low carb diet for a, a while. Right. I have. Yeah. So I first learned about low carb in medical school and uh, by an upperclassman who was a friend of mine. And then I was convinced by my biochemistry professor um, that it was absolutely physiologically appropriate and probably the best dietary plan. And that was not his intention by his biochemistry class, but he also taught our nutrition class. And I realized that if I if I followed the standard American diet from his nutrition class, um, he, he taught a lot of great things in nutrition, but one of those was the food pyramid, and that part wasn't so good. But if you take the food pyramid and plug it into the biochemistry framework, diabetes is the likely result. Heart disease is the likely result. And so that's really what convinced me that this you know, low carbohydrate has to be the way. So I, I played with it for a long time through medical school and residency and various degrees. And then once I got here to Knoxville and really had some energy to put into it and started dealing with it on my own, it really was a, a it was a great um, step up over probably the last 13 years. So I've, I've done various forms of low carb, you know, almost all the time since then. Um, I, usually underneath 100 grams, I found that a sweet spot for me is about 75 grams. It allows me to eat some of the foods that I really like, um, like blueberries and so forth and apples. Um, it keeps me, uh, in measurable ketosis if I want to and that sort of stuff. But over the summer, um, what I did was I posted a blog that was detailing, um, a continuous glucose monitor, my own blood sugar results over a two week time period as I, a standard American diet, a relatively high carbohydrate diet. Um, and, uh, so that was for two weeks. That was around July 4th and all the wild excursions of my blood sugar and the symptoms that I had and what foods caused different things and all that that was detailed sort of on a day in and day out basis. And then, and then some of the instability in my blood sugar, even when I wasn't eating. So meals earlier in the day would affect me for hours, 10, 12, 15 hours later. 
And that, that's a big problem because it, it can affect your sleep and so forth. And so then I contrasted that with uh, two weeks of nutritional ketosis. And so nutritional ketosis on average, I was at, I think, 17 or 18 grams of carbohydrates a day. And, um, and then blood sugar was just rock solid, stable, anywhere from about 80 to 95 or so. I don't think it ever got over 100. Um, and so really no excursions. And when the blood sugar stable and normal, that means the insulin stable and normal as well. We, so we use the blood sugar as a proxy for our insulin because we really want to know what the insulin level. The blood sugar is important, but the insulin is more important. And um, so we measured that. I use the, con the continuous glucose monitor that I use is uh, the Freestyle Libre. Um, it's a simple little sensor that you wear in your arm for two weeks. It reads out to a phone app. And then that's data that I can patients can share with me if they want to, and we can track that in real time together. And that's just, that's a wonderful feedback tool. Costs $35 per sensor. The app is free, super cheap. I mean, just something that everybody ought to know. It's kind of like not having it is, um, it's like driving your car without a speedometer. I mean, you kind of know what you're doing and you can kind of get a sense of what everybody else is doing and maybe what's appropriate for whatever road you're on. But we all grew up with a speedometer so that we know exactly what we're doing and it teaches us to be a good driver. And I just you found people um, benefit from wearing oh all the time yeah wearing continuously yeah yeah okay. so so most of the time what I have so so for folks that are on insulin it's a it's a simple one everybody ought to have one all the time there's just no reason not to um, and so for type two diabetics it's a great tool but anybody asking the question what does this food do to my body and do I do I accept that do I want to change that then a continuous glucose monitor is a gold mine of information. Mm. Uh, for pretty cheap. So it's not something that everybody has to use every single day, just like all tools, you know, you use them for a time, you learn from them and you move to the next step and then you come back to them. Well, I don't know you mentioned the, the food pyramid because that's definitely, um, I, I imagine the bulk of adults, you know, that's what they grew up with, you know, right. as far as being taught in school was the food pyramid and, you know, even going back to school, you know, now it's changed and we have what the food plate, I think they call it, but um, it would be interesting hearing like with your, um, with your education and working with children, pediatrics, how do you find all this fits like in, in terms of a family right? Um, with kids as well? Right. So I think, you know, that's one of those questions about where are we starting from helps us understand where we need to go or how we're going to get there. So when... Kids are starting out generally less metabolically stressed than perhaps I was, you know? And so um, with those kids, the sooner we can get them on whole food and cut out some of the processed foods, some of those higher sugar content foods, um, you know, chocolate milk is served in schools and served in hospitals, and it's an appropriate um, dairy product. I was in a hospital room years ago with a patient and they brought them, it was a diabetic, and they brought them, their, their fruit for the day was a glass of orange juice, and their grain for the day was a yellow cake with chocolate frosting. And so that's just ridiculous. I mean, and so that's, that's living out the food pyramid in a real way. And so if we can intervene on kids early, then we have less ground to make up. And so that's where the real food approach comes in. I really do believe we're created to be omnivores. Um, and so, and we can talk about carnivore and veganism and that sort of stuff, but I really do believe we are designed to eat both and there's huge benefits. And um, the question is what's wise to eat both? You know, there's plenty of times where it's unwise to eat animals, just where it might be unwise to eat plants. And so, or we might do things for a purpose. 
And so picking and choosing and understanding that. So that's where I really like the Whole30 because it allows for parents to lead their kids in eating real food that's really high quality. They will handle and process those sugars in a potato better than you know they would otherwise because it's a real food, the way it's prepared and things like that. And then parents who need to monitor their carbohydrate intake are able to cut back on those carbs as those parts of the meals. So for instance, um, I made out of that Whole30, uh, earlier this week, I made the shepherd's pie recipe. So it's sweet potatoes and ground beef and onions and celery and different things like that. And so as I was keeping my carbohydrates on the low end, I just didn't eat the sweet potato top, which was honestly kind of hard for me because I really like sweet potatoes. But, but wanting to keep my sugars low for that particular day, it was very easy to modify that recipe and just keep that out. Whereas my kids, on the other hand, have at it. I want you to have this. It's a high quality whole food. Sugars aren't an issue. Not that they won't ever be an issue, but the idea is they're they're fresher, you know. And so it's it's often like um, kids have sometimes have a harder time burning than adults, perhaps because we've had more sun exposure over our years, and so they have a little less concern. And if you moderate that exposure early on, they tend to handle it a whole lot better. So, so that's kind of one of the ways I approach it. So I don't I don't routinely recommend a super low carbohydrate diet for kids just out of the gate Mm -hmm. i think it's totally fine if they want to sit down and eat you know eggs and sausage and avocados for breakfast i think that's completely okay but it's uh, i don't want them to avoid some of the naturally occurring carbohydrates unless they need to you know we have overweight children we have metabolic syndrome children we have type 2 diabetic children in our community and those those kids will need to change and avoid it just like any of the rest of us Sure, and I know that's um, a huge concern is childhood obesity. It is. Um, and um, with, I don't know if you see or work with that often in your practice, yes, like if it's, if it's the same approach as well as, as far as um, hitting it hard with the diet and nutrition, I'd right. imagine. It is, yeah. So you, you got to focus in on the diet and it's always the parent's diet. You mm-hmm. know, we lead our children and they eat what we buy at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So I could never complain at my kids that they're eating something because I probably bought it at the grocery store, right? And neither of them can drive. And so the the downside is you, you sometimes have a one meal, one big meal of the day that's outside of your control and that's their school lunch. And so if they're buying a school lunch, you have to kind of work through that and kind of understand that that one's going to be outside of your control. There are certain things you can do, but you may not get a real good low carbohydrate meal there or even a whole food meal from that standpoint. So what you do have, you you work with the options that you have as far as breakfast and after school snacks and, you know, sports snacks and these other sorts of things that are out there. And then um, you mentioned uh, carnivore Mm -hmm. diet versus vegan. Yeah. So So we might ruffle some feathers here. (laughs) Most definitely. Yeah. So this and vaccines are the two best ways to ruffle feathers. That's Um, right. So, you know, so carnivore is just the sort of, it's, it's a natural evolution of the ketogenic diet. So really low carbohydrate diets are going to start excluding plants pretty quickly. Most carbohydrates in the world come from plants. And so there's not a lot of good examples of animals that have high carbohydrate contents or animal products that have high carbohydrate contents. You can find a few things, but you're kind of stretching it. Like a cup of milk is nine grams. That's really not high carbohydrate. And it's, it's probably more concentrated sugars than other things, but it's really not a whole lot. Eggs have 0.7 grams of carbohydrates per. So, the, you know, most animals are really low carbohydrate. So as people get into the really low carbohydrate and they're they kind of feel free to eat some of those foods that they've kind of felt off limits, especially red meat. 
they start to get into that more. And so eating more of those um, proteins, they're very satisfying. They're delicious. They're enjoyable. And so you do f- see some folks that kind of go in there and they kind of issue all the the plant matter altogether. And, and there is kind of a place for it. There are times where I think that that's probably a good idea. You see a lot of gut health get better when somebody's on a really low carbohydrate diet, taking all the plant material. So by definition, fiber in a plant is food that you can't digest. And so you're putting something through the system that is an indigestible product for you. There may be some benefits here and there for it, but it's feeding gut bacteria and that can have a plus or minus benefit to you. So sometimes when we're trying to settle down the gut, we just stop feeding it. We stop feeding the stray cats that are in there and we just feed it and we go through a carnivore diet and we really get rid of some of the the food for the GI bacteria and settle down that population and help it out. It, I, I admit there's not, you know, 10,000 randomized placebo controlled trials out there, but as a, as a low carbohydrate diet, it's a really safe diet to, for a lot of folks to try when they're trying to settle down the gut. Autoimmunity is another one. We see a lot of autoimmunity connected with gut health. Um, and so, uh, helping to calm down that can make a big difference and that, but we get into fasting a lot for autoimmunity as well to help out with that. And again, we, we see studies that help reduce that when you, when you look at dietary change, it reduces antibody burdens and reduces symptom burdens for autoimmune diseases, but we don't know of curative protocols yet, you know? So when we think about how do we help people when, when what they're doing isn't enough, where, what do we do next? And when that falls within the framework of dietary guidelines that I think are completely reasonable for the human, it makes total sense to go try that. So carnivore is that diet, um, just no plant material at all. Uh, a lot of people really like it. Some people find it a little boring. Um, it's nutritionally complete though. So you're not lacking anything. I think that's the big challenge with veganism. There are plant, I mean, there are animal-based nutrients that plants don't have. So B12 is the simplest one. Um, and you, you can't be, get B12 from the, the plant world easily at all. And you can, you could grow certain things. Like I read a study one time where if you feed cows extra B12, their manure becomes B12 rich. And so then you could grow the spinach and that B12 rich manure and if you eat 12 cups of spinach a day, then you'll get enough B12. So yeah, it's possible, you know, but it's just not really a practical solution. Mm-hmm. Whereas literally every bite of every animal you've ever had is basically nutritionally complete. And it's just, that's hard. It's hard to argue. And so um, when you say, okay, I'm going to design a dietary plan. Let's start with those things that are required for human survival. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pack a bag to go to Mars. What do I need to pack so I can eat and survive? Well, you're going to start out with proteins and fats. Well, what's the single best nutrient source of proteins and fats? Animal products, easily, you know, and not just muscle meat. That's kind of, if I were to say the critique of, uh, you know, carnivore diets is that a lot of them just focus on muscle meat. How many ribeyes can I eat? Um, but it really needs to be nose to tail. It needs to be the, the you know, the organs as well. Um, and some of those can be a real challenge. I, I can't say that I'm real diverse in that that regard. But historically, humans have eaten the whole animal. And that may be something that we really want to try and bring back to our culture as well. Well, um, we're going to take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsor, and then come back and talk about fasting. Stay Healthy Knoxville is sponsored by Simply Physio. 
a physio clinic that equips and empowers you to live your life to the fullest so that you can enjoy the things you love to do and be the person you are made to be. Simply Physio specializes in helping people get back to a healthy and active lifestyle, living free from pain and medication and avoiding unnecessary surgery. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a special gift from Simply Physio and enjoy listening to the rest of the episode. Thanks for coming back, guys. We're um, here with Dr. McCall. Uh, we're transitioning just a bit. Um, fasting was mentioned in the first half of uh, the episode here. And I um, would be interested, Dr. McCall, in hearing um, just how fasting fits into um, the nutrition, the diets that we're talking about. And um, I know my experience in fasting growing up is there was no awareness of any nutritional benefits. And that may be a lot of our audience um, listeners, like, you know, fasting was kind of a religious, you know, practice, discipline, and that spiritual aspect of it, um, which is healthy in itself. But talking even just how it connects with um, our physical health. Yeah. So uh, fasting is something that I've added to my own personal health and the, my practice probably over the last two or three years of, as I started dabbling into it. Um, probably over the last year and a half, I've made it a weekly practice, um, most weeks. Um, and I think that's that's a key part of it is, is fasting is another tool that we have. It's the back half of my nutrition philosophy and what to eat and when to eat it. Those are the two big questions. And if we are going to improve somebody's insulin resistance, then we need to, the foods that they eat need to be very low in carbohydrates because carbohydrates are going to raise their insulin levels, right? Proteins and fats don't do that. So not eating is one of the best ways not to raise your insulin level. And that, I mean, I know that sounds like, well, that's silly, of course, you know, but the average American, when you look at studies, eats 15 hours a day and doesn't eat nine hours a day. So we eat when we first get up and we eat something throughout the day and we eat right before we go to bed and our body is constantly dealing with these foods and never back to baseline. And so what fasting does is it uh, brings us back to baseline and it allows for sensitization of the body to the effects of insulin. There are certain genes that get turned on at about 14 hours of fasting that are never ever turned on in any other respect. And so if we don't spend some period of our life obtaining at least a 14 hour fast, then we're missing out on what those genes do for us. And they're important genes. They're important things to, to realize. And so what I typically, when I'm introducing fasting to somebody, again, depending upon their prior experience and how much they, they want to get into it, the studies are really good on type two diabetics that if we do a twice a week fast, non-consecutive days, 24 hours at a time, and these are fasting, and we'll talk about a little bit about the variations of fasting. Some fasting actually allows for calorie intake, which is kind of not what most people think about fasting. But the studies in diabetics, non-consecutive days, twice a week, shows dramatic improvements in their A1Cs and blood sugar control over a 12-week time period compared to the American Diabetes Association diet done seven days a week. So just to get this straight, it's five days a week of ad-lib diet, kind of whatever they want to eat, and two days a week of not eating does better than seven days a week of a diet that's on point with the best evidence we have so far. So that's a, a pretty shocking, honestly. Now, of course, the evidence is changing. We've got a lot of evidence of, of disease reversal with, with the low-carbohydrate diets. The Verda Health Clinic group is publishing a lot there. So I would say the best evidence we have for is low-carb. And so we pair that. So we do five days a week. The, the general idea is trying to get to five days a week 
of a low carbohydrate diet and two days of fasting of some sort. So I usually will ask patients to do this every fourth day. And so we have a kind of a two week Kickstarter dietary plan. And uh, every fourth day we ask them to do a fast. Often so three days of food, one day of no food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and we usually start off with a 16 to eight protocol. So say you eat dinner about eight o'clock or so. You don't eat anything else the rest of that night. You can have all the water you want to. You get up the next morning, you drink water. If you like unsweetened black coffee or unsweet hot tea or something like that, I think that's totally fine. So caffeinated drinks, I, although metabolically active and in some cases would say the purest fast is a water fast, I think you're splitting hairs there. I think not eating and having some caffeine is really is is a really good plan for somebody that's used to eating a lot of high carbohydrate foods. I, I really don't think that's a big deal. And so we choose, you know, 16 hours is often the first thing and we break the fast with a new meal. And, and it's really pretty simple. You skip breakfast. And uh, if folks want to move past that, then I usually will encourage them to do a 24-hour fast at least once a week, non-consecutive days. Um, and so that's usually a dinner to dinner. So somebody eats dinner uh, and that dinner is usually just because it's the family meal. So when I fast, I do a dinner to dinner because I like eating dinner with my family. I don't want to give that up. And so I'm going to eat dinner meal one night and then I'm going to fast the next day. Nothing to eat. Just I like black coffee anyway. So that's not a hardship um, and just plenty of water and then eat the next dinner meal. And that's about 24 hours. And that is remarkably powerful at not only sensitizing you to the effect of insulin, um, developing ketone production. So as your insulin levels drop, you actually start to draw more ketones out of storage, out of your fat storage. And those are energy cells. And so you basically, there's this kind of this sense of uh, more and more energy that's coming out. Uh, there's a clarity of thought that comes with it, which is probably one of the reasons I like it the most. I find that I do my best work in my hardest days. I fast for those days so that I can do my best work on those days. Um, and, uh, that's, that's kind of one of the big physiologic aspects to it. And then as people are going through this every four day protocol, they usually find days that are not good fits. And we encourage them not to fast those days. Then go five days. That's fine. If you think that Tuesday is not going to be a good day because of X, Y, and Z, that's fine. So like, for instance, uh, Tuesday is typically my fast day. Tomorrow we have a celebration at lunch. It's one of the first Christmas lunches as I'm going to. I'm not going to miss that. So I'm probably not going to fast. I'll skip breakfast, but I'll fast until lunch and I'll break my fast then and eat a reasonable meal and so forth. So I think it's a, an adaptive process. You can pick other days to choose to use it, but about once a week tends to help. And then some people go even longer. So I've got some patients that come in for even longer fasts. Um, I've got one of my patients that regularly does a five-day fast, uh, and he's completely reversed his diabetes. His last blood work was phenomenally good. It was just normal. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. Is he's he's restored that from an A1C of 13, which is incredibly high as far as an average blood sugar, to normal in about I think it's been about nine months, maybe something like that, um, and through just through a fasting protocol. So the the 16-8 you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So that would be what would be. Um, terms like an intermittent fast right, versus yeah. a, a traditional 24-hour fast, which probably more people are familiar with. Right. Yeah. And and there there's not there's a lot of gray area in the terminology. Uh, Time-restricted eating is generally no food for 12 hours. That's sort of the baseline minimum that I recommend. Try and find 12 hours of every 24, every 24 of no food in the, in the gut. I think that's a really good thing. There's a lot of good evidence of uh, reduction of cancer growth and, and hindrance of cancer growth and things like that, just on that 12, 13 hours of no food. 
So you're saying regularly, like um, every day, every day yeah. to, to try to avoid. So if you're, you eat dinner at seven o'clock, then mm-hmm. you wouldn't eat breakfast again until yeah, seven, until seven o'clock. Yeah. That doesn't always work out. Right. But sure. it's something that it really, when you look at the nurse's health study, I think it was a, it's either 36 or 39% reduction in recurrence of breast cancer in women who fasted 13 hours a day. And that was just accidental. This was just self-reported. When did you stop eating? When did you start eating the next day? I mean, nearly 40% reduction in breast cancer recurrence, that's huge, you know, because of the what we think is because of the reduced insulin, which is such a strong growth factor for cancer. So um, time-restricted eating, is that about 12 hours a day? Fasting, um, some people will, t- will stretch time-restricted eating out up until 24 hours, that it's not truly a fast until you fasted for 24 hours. I, I don't think so. I think anything, when you start missing a meal, that's when you're starting to fast. So that's about a 16 hour fast. And then a prolonged fast is more than 24 hours at a time in one stretch. And so I think I, what I heard from you is what you like to see and what, what you've found very beneficial in patients is daily, regularly um, avoid eating for 12 hours yes. overnight, typically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you could find two days of doing one day, like an intermittent fast of 16 hours without food, um, and then a second potential day of a, f- a complete 24 yeah. hours. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of variability with that second half, at least one day a week. So where they're finding their fasting and depends on basically how metabolically challenged you are. So a diabetic, I'm going to try and encourage twice a week to get this done, non-consecutive days, and maybe start looking at prolonged fasts for, for really reversing that. Um, but at least two days out of the week, because the studies are clear that that's beneficial to them. They make a huge difference. For other folks that may not be as metabolically challenged as diabetics, and then they want to provide some benefit, at least one day a week is a really good idea. Um, so one 24-hour fast, I think, is something to really shoot for. I mean, I think it falls in line. It's one of the things I love about sort of the, the nutrition and the fasting is that it really falls in line with you know historical norms for religious practice for most of the world, especially Christians for most of the world, is that we were regularly taught and regularly practiced the avoidance of food for certain reasons. And it does not shock me that the God that created me and taught me those kind of rules or those principles also made the human body to be benefited by that process. And that's just, I think that synergy and the fact that those two things go so well together, Mm -hmm. um, it's not something that hurts the body to do. And in fact, it's something that allows the body to survive. Um, so a prolonged fast of multiple days should not be a challenge for the average person. Um, it really should be something we could, again, not recommending that we have to do that. It's just, it's a, it's a clear possibility as opposed to needing six meals a day to get through. Um, that's a concession. The reality is we probably all ought to fast some. Sure. Well, um, I know we're just uh, scratching the surface on some of these topics. I don't know if there's any um, um avenues that you encourage people, uh, resources, mm-hmm. like to further their understanding of the topic that you point people towards specifically? Yeah, there's a couple. I mean, I've got a host of books that I have found very useful, websites and other authors around that I think are really good. I think probably one of the ones that I recommend more often than not is Jason Fung's book. He's a nephrologist from Canada. He wrote The Obesity Code and The Diabetes Code. They're really accessible books for everybody. They're not overly technical, but they are accurate. And so they help people understand their physiology. Because one of my goals, and I tell this to every patient, 
my goal is to teach you how to drive your car. And once you learn how to drive your car, the car of, of your body, once I teach you what those three pedals are for, you can go wherever you want to. You don't need to answer, you don't need people to answer the question, is this okay to eat or is that okay to eat? What should I eat today? You won't need that anymore. And so once you know, how do I step on the gas? What causes insulin to be elevated? How do I slow that down? How do I change gears? Once you learn that physiology, that's really good. And Jason's done a really good job of that. He used to run the intensive diabetes, uh, intensive dietary management um, uh, program. He's since renamed that to call the fasting method um, and uh, had a website, you know, sort of process. And he has his own sort of membership thing, but the books are really accessible. Um, and he's just an advocate. He was a Canadian nephrologist who said, you know what, I'm on the back end of the problem. All these people are getting kidney failure because of their diabetes. Let's start at the beginning. Let's cure the diabetes instead of trying to just treat the kidneys. And so that's how he kind of changed his practice over the last 15 years as well. We're going to transition here just to um, the back piece of our podcast um, as far as asking you some questions, uh, quick answer questions, see if uh, any of those answers change from last time we had you on the show, Dr. McCall. Uh, but the first one is tell us uh, something that's on your bucket list uh, to do around Knoxville, East Tennessee area. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I like being outdoors a lot. I like hiking a lot. I've transitioned some of that hiking to do some uh, four-wheeling. Um, so it's been fun to, to drive some of the forest trails in uh, Cherokee National Forest and up at Wind Rock and so forth. That's been a lot of fun. Try not to break anything because that can get expensive pretty quick. And sure. I really don't want to do that. But uh, it's just fun getting out in the woods and making it accessible. Nice. Do you have a four-wheeler then? Yeah. They, nice. Well, so I have a four-wheel drive car. So, yeah, a okay. cruiser. So I've heard... Um, I had a client maybe a year ago. I hadn't heard of Windrock, but he mentioned it. And I was like, man, I haven't been out there. But yeah, after uh, I looked at the website, and it looks like a, a fun thing to, I don't know if I should go being a complete novice, if you would recommend going with somebody who knows what yeah, they're well, doing. Don't go or... with me. I'm still a novice too. <laughs> okay. But uh, there are some easy trails out there. There's a lot of places that are just easy to get to. I went, uh, I met up with the Land Cruiser Association Club back in March and we went for a trail ride. Nice. And that was a blast. There were guys that, that knew a lot and could kind of walk you through some tough spots and mm -hmm. places that I would have never driven on my own. We went through just fine. Just a few scratches, nothing too big. So, Any changes to your favorite uh, Knoxville restaurant establishments, Dr. McCall? Yeah. So, I mean, both of those I think are still great. Nick and Jay's is just a great breakfast. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go. It's, uh, you know, it's locally owned, um, just wonderful people, great uh, low carb breakfast. Um, when I'm not eating low carb, uh, Little Joe's is still my favorite pizza place. I was thinking about this uh, out in uh, Oak Ridge. There's um, a Jefferson Soda Cafe or Jefferson Soda Shop, something like that. It's a place I found not too long ago, and it's another hometown short order place. Mm -hmm. Great breakfast, lots of good food, um, really nice staff as well. So that's that's a fun one to go and relax. My wife and I have a lot of breakfast dates there. Nice. Well, um, this episode will be coming out um, right after the New Year's, so it'll be timely on you know the diet, uh, nutrition, and fasting. Hopefully, for a lot of people, um, would be interested in hearing what's your top recommendation for helping keep a New Year's resolution. Helping to keep a New Year's resolution, uh, I think some of the the best things to keep a New Year's, New Year's resolution is to be accountable. Uh, I mean, that's that's um, it's so key to have somebody there to encourage you, um, to encourage them to, to set that standard and that expectation. Um, and it's, it's about 
probably you know probably one of the best things that I've heard about this in the recent past. It's not about doing something; it's about being something. When you identify yourself as somebody who does this thing that you're trying to do, I am someone who exercises. I, you know, I'm not going to exercise. I'm an exerciser. You know, I exercise. Or mm-hmm. I'm not trying to eat well. I am a person who eats well. I'm not trying to quit smoking. I'm a non-smoker. And so, when you identify as that person. It's much easier to keep that habit because you're just doing exactly what you should do. You're doing your nature. And so accountability helps us to identify ourselves as that that we're trying to become. You're grouping yourself with someone else that wants to do the same thing. And now you have a tribe of people who are the same. Um, And so now you're a group of exercises. You're a group of non-smokers. And I want to stay within my tribe. I want to stay with those people that I identify with. And what do we do? We don't smoke. We exercise. We eat well. And that's just a way to encourage one another. So that accountability and that identification within that accountability partnership, I think, is really key. Sure. Well, I understand your contact information has changed um, since the last time you were on the show with um, starting up um, Pillar yeah. Primary Care. So tell others how they can get in touch with you if they're interested in um, receiving some of your support, becoming a client, or finding just in more information about your practice. Yeah, yeah. So um, we thankfully haven't changed locations, so we're still over in Hardin Valley. Um, but uh, the website's changed. It's PillarPC, P-I-L-L-A-R-P-C dot com. And then uh, my email address is just mbmccall, uh, M-C-C-O-L-L, um, at pillarpc.com. And anybody's welcome to email me. Happy to kind of talk through some basic things uh, that way or call me there at the office at 244-1800. Be happy to look through that or the website. So really pretty easy to get a hold of us. Um, we're growing every day, and uh, I think people are really loving the idea of personal attention. I just want to compliment you on all the patients that I've sent you over the last year or two are just loved it. Um, that hands-on one-on-one approach uh, that I think you and I try and bring to the healthcare fields are, is just, it resonates with folks. Sure. People want individual care because that's what they deserve. And um, and so people are really wanting to look for that. And so I, I feel really blessed to have that opportunity. And just uh, thanks again for having me on the show. I've just loved it. Well, thank you. I love um, hearing your journey as well, um, practicing medicine the way that you know you can mm-hmm. and really um, inspired to hear how you've set um, a way to do that and to offer that type of care to the Knoxville um, and greater Knoxville community. Thanks again for coming on, Dr. McCall. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. And uh, stay healthy, Knoxville. Thank you for tuning in to the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio. If your pain is preventing you from staying healthy and active, and you'd like to avoid surgery, pain medicine, or just want to get back to doing the things you love in and around Knoxville, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the next best steps for resolving it. Find our ebooks online at simplypt.com/health-tips. There you will find ebooks for topics such as neck and shoulder pain, lower back and hip pain, knee pain, and TMJ. These quick-to-read reports will provide you with expert tips, tricks, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit simplypt.com/health-tips to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no-obligation phone consultations with a doctor of physical therapy to Knoxville area residents. Just call us at 865-351-9000.
0615 or visit us at simplypt.com and click the Talk to a PT button on the home page to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast. 